The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. It's only a few weeks into the COVID-19 crisis, and we're already moving into the what next, but that doesn't mean the crisis is over, of course. We will be facing many questions in coming days concerning the economy, our social systems, our politics, our churches, and the everyday lives of us and our neighbors. And a pressing question that we've been asking at The Living Church and many, many others have been as well is, will we as the church have been what we ought to have been through this? How do we even begin to think about that question now or answer it successfully or even recognize the contours of our task? The Reverend Dr. Jonathan Bales joins us in this episode. Jonathan got his PhD in theology at Boston College, where he wrote a dissertation on the fourth century church father, Gregory of Nyssa, And he has a job title that is about to make a lot of seminary grads out there very jealous. He is the Cathedral Theologian at Christ Church Anglican in Plano, Texas. Jonathan has put together an online class for his parish, starting with the history of Christian engagement with crisis. And he and I take a look at the syllabus of his class to look at what is essentially the history of Christian character its highs and its lows, and to talk about what these examples might demand of us today. Jonathan, tell me a little bit about your parish context. So I'm serving right now at a um, a very large suburban ACNA congregation, and um, it's North Dallas in Plano. We tend to have a lot of professionals. It's a pretty intergenerational church, a um, lot of children and teens, but then a number of senior citizens as well. So It's been an adjustment for me coming to a suburban from an urban context and presented different challenges and opportunities, but that's where I am now. So you're teaching this class right now and you're teaching it via podcast and you've begun your class with an overview of some other major crises that the Eastern and Western church over the centuries has lived through, including black death, plague, famine. Is there anything while you were doing your research in this area that struck you particularly deeply? I think that there were a couple things that struck me. Number one was, I think one thing that really impressed me, especially in the early church, was the question about whether or not to flee or to be near those who were struck with the, with the plague, with the sickness. And the overwhelming response, or at least the one that gives that gets positive report is those Christians deciding to remain and to nurse and to care, as well as to develop institutional structures that would provide that for people. And what the reason that struck me is because that's, that's so different from our context today. And I remember I was reading 
a little a letter that Martin Luther wrote in the 16th century when he was dealing with a plague. And he too was counseling um, this advice of that we should care for those who are sick and be be with those who have been struck by the illness. At the same time, he also recognized the danger of contagion and of um, actually contracting a virus or a sickness yourself and passing it on to other people. So he gave consideration to what our moral duty is in limiting our exposure. And that was something that, that very much surprised me and felt incredibly relevant to our situation today. Yeah, it does. And it always strikes me when I read history or hear from historians how much people in the past were not fools. Um, there can be this prejudice that the farther we go along, you know, the the timeline of the world, the more enlightened we are, the smarter we are generally as if we sort of get it through osmosis or as if an increase of knowledge automatically equals wisdom or the ability to know how to use it. But um, people have had even uh, excellent scientific insights uh, for many centuries. And so looking back at the past is certainly not a fool's errand when it comes to figuring out what are we called to do now? Now, another thing that you said that I found surprising is this emphasis among Christians to develop institutional structures alongside the potentially sacrificial caring for their neighbors. And that strikes me because a lot of the advice that we find ourselves giving to one another now, and even if it might be the best advice we can give, it, it can sound so soft soap, is to say, call call your grandma on FaceTime, be nice to people, make sure that we're just coming together and, and uh, send somebody a funny meme, stay six feet apart, be safe, be well. And maybe there were Christians in other times um, saying, okay, guys, let's organize. Who, who wants to build a hospital? Yeah, so that, that is a really interesting aspect because in many ways, we have inherited the the benefit of the institutional innovations of people that have gone before us. And I think that question about what should our response be, whether it should be focused on the individual agency and, and opportunities we have in interpersonal relationships with people, or whether it should be focused on some kind of larger corporate action. So an example that I give from the early church is the development in the in the 360s and 370s in Asia Minor of this institution called the Basileus, which is sort of the precursor to the modern day hospital system. And it was in many ways developed by Basil of Caesarea, the bishop, but he probably used land that was given from an imperial grant to him. So he himself was uh, not only drawing on the resources of the church, but actually working in com in cooperation with the state of his time to develop this institution, and um, and and ultimately that was what led to the modern day hospital system. And so now we kind of take these things for granted, but in reality, the reason that we can respond in the way that we do, in the organized fashion that we do, with a medical system that has already been built up and that's prepared to receive a lot of patients with research institutions like universities that develop from Christian innovation, different governmental and federal structures. All of this is in some sense a legacy. So I think for us today, the question is, how do we 
continue to use those structures and insofar as we participate in them how can we how can we use them and develop them and innovate even further but also at the same time maybe for some of us the primary area of responsibility that we've been given isn't to oversee or develop some large institution but it is precisely in maybe some of these interpersonal relationships i think the question for us is how can we do both how can we care for those who are in need uh, within the immediate relationships we have? And how can we use the structures that we have developed and maybe innovate more to actually help people on a much larger, broader level? Mm, Yeah, because it sounds like from the area you're describing, and I myself live in Dallas, that this is an area where you have people living with and among quite a bit of wealth and an influence. And I bet you have some congregants that have in their communities and in the business world and other places, quite a bit of of power and influence. And so I wonder, are there any institutional changes or restructuring still needed in our society that you are encouraging parishioners to, to think about and to consider? You know, I'm a little hesitant um, when it comes to offering particular advice about something like uh, social or corporate um, restructuring, just because I try to recognize as a clergy person and as a theologian, both where, um, where my expertise is and where it ends. So I think in many ways, you know, C.S. Lewis kind of talks about this at one point, what the role of the church is in providing moral instruction. Um, it's, it's to give its people a vision of of the moral good that they should be striving for, to pronounce prohibitions on things to avoid, um, to to give encouragement and particular direction. But what that means, for instance, if you're working in uh, a Fortune 500 company and you're at an executive level, or if you're working in a development firm, um, or maybe if you're working in, in something that looks at medical research, that's going to differ a lot. I do think that there are some exciting new developments that I want people to be aware of. One good example, for instance, in terms of thinking about something like poverty alleviation, Basil is addressing poverty in his own day in Cappadocia, and he does it by developing this sort of early rudimentary hospital system. There has been a lot of research in this area in recent years, and and there are some really exciting new developments in areas like micro lending, loaning, and microfinance that have had significantly better and and more positive results in incur- um, encouraging and, and entrepreneurship in the developing world. So whether that's non-religious organizations like Kiva, you know, where you can actually participate as an individual with the wealth that you've been given to to help donate to microfinancing loans, or whether that's Christian organizations that have also taken similar strategies. I do want to call attention to some of these innovations that seem to be working well, while also recognizing that a lot of my parishioners actually have significantly more knowledge and expertise in their own institutions to know how they need to be reformed or what they can do within the structures they already have. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like your approach to Christian leadership at this time, especially in leadership in Christian education, is to really form and challenge 
maybe reform um, as as hearts are open and as as God leads the imaginations of your parishioners and the people under your care. Yeah, I I think of um, you know that that book that Richard Hayes wrote. I think it was back in the 1990s or early 2000s. Moral Vision of the New Testament, and he appeals a lot to the imagination. There is one of the primary ways that Scripture actually forms us as moral agents. And I think about that in my own context as a parish priest, as someone who is overseeing curriculum development when I'm preaching, when I'm teaching, when I'm meeting with people, that what I am doing there is helping people come to understand the the moral teaching of Scripture and how it bears upon their own responsibility and their own spheres of life. But often, not doing it by way of making very particular prescriptions for them on how they need to carry out their daily tasks or use their agency, but rather informing their imagination for what are the what are the sort of visions of the good life as well as what are the obligations and responsibilities and patterns and models that were given in scripture well let's go in that direction a little bit and move uh, move forward in your syllabus uh, for this class. You have an entire lesson dedicated to faith, and then another lesson dedicated to hope. And it seems in these lessons that you are specifically going to try, among other things, to move away from this very American notion that Christian faith and hope are essentially something that you get written in cursive on a piece of driftwood and hang on your wall. Uh, and then that's where it stops. That it's like this warm, fuzzy blanket that we can pull over our heads when the real world gets too scary. How, Jonathan, are Christian faith and hope not an escape? You know, that's a really good question because it's what, it's been one of the, the common critiques of Christianity in the modern world. You know, you think of Karl Marx's famous description of religion as the opiate of the masses, because there's significant concern that, you know, Christian hope for something like an eternal future or in the American context in, in evangelical circles, this sort of apocalyptic hope for something like the rapture or the second coming of Christ is really a way of kind of abdicating responsibility in the present and just resigning yourself to the you know current injustices and and current evils of the world and not really taking responsibility you can just cast your vision to some future paradise and not worry about you know present circumstances so not that the second coming of christ is not a reality which is going to happen, but that people use it as a way to shelter themselves from living now. Right. I mean, so that's been the critique. Uh, the critique is that's how this hope often functions. Mm. The historian in me wants to say, I think that critique is is seriously misguided. Max Weber is very famous for talking about uh, Protestantism, especially Calvinist version of Protestantism, as the motivating force for uh, the development, you know, of industry and capitalism and and social innovation and reform in the modern world. So I think there's a lot of ways in which you can say, even those who we might have described as very heavenly minded, did an, an enormous amount of earthly good. Um, at the same time, I think that it's helpful when you talk about what are faith and hope to 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 give more explanation to what these are. You know, faith 
faith is often seen as maybe something that just consists in believing in certain things. And because of that, it's divorced from from what we do, from action. And a lot of times, you know, people get caught up in this idea that Protestants emphasize faith and doctrine and belief, and that it's a more Catholic thing to emphasize good works or activity. But, you know, the, uh, the, the Anglican theologian Oliver O'Donovan, when he talks about the way that the Protestant reformers understood faith, he draws attention to the fact that for them, faith is inherently lively and always active. And that's why O'Donovan calls faith as the root of action. And I think in many ways you could say hope as well. Hope is the root of action. So faith is, faith is a, a belief in, in the, the promises and the future of God, which is promised. Uh, faith is attention and belief to what God has said and what, has, what God has promised, and a willingness to act as if those promises are true. You think of Hebrews 11, you know, which is this great New Testament exhortation to and praise of characters of faith all throughout the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses and all these great images of faith. But what the author of Hebrews draws attention to isn't the beliefs of Moses and Abraham, but the way that their lives and what they did uh, was dependent on their trust in these promises. Now, if I am someone who, uh, I'm someone who's at home, I'm someone who's living in a place that's um, the stay at home measures are pretty uh, deeply ingrained. And I would say, you know, I'm, I have faith, I have faith in God, I have hope that he will make all things well, I believe in the resurrection and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, on a very practical level. Faith and hope, how are those still more than comforts to me? How do how are they they're of course comforts and comfort maybe shouldn't be downplayed at all, but how are they how are they more than comforts? How do they spur me if they're if they are the root of action, how does that practically function? That's a good question. Let me uh I you know, one thing I would say is what is it that you have faith in? So sometimes we talk about faith in this very generic sense as sort of like belief in God or faith is faith is some confidence that, you know, all things will work themselves out one day. Um, you know, maybe we'll like quote Julian of Norwich and all things shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And this is kind of what faith is. It's just a belief that everything's going to work out and that there's a God that exists. Christians, our faith is particular. It's distinctive. The faith that the people of God are called to all throughout Scripture isn't faith in some generic idea of God. It's faith in a very, very particular God. Um, and idolatry is always a temptation to place your faith and your hope in something other than this very, very particular God. So for Christians, we have faith not simply in the promises that God has given, but faith is a response to, to the call of Christ as well. So Christ calls us to come and to follow him and to follow his pattern of life. 
And in the early church, you know, if you take, for instance, that that example of Basil of Caesarea that I cited before, Basil and his Gregory, his his brother Gregory, his younger brother especially, this is what I wrote my doctoral dissertation on actually, is Gregory, Basil's younger brother, played a significant role in promoting Basil's activities of social reform and institution building for charity, caring for the lepers and those who are in poverty and those who are sick. And one of the main strategies that Gregory used in doing it wasn't just reminding people, you know, sort of Matthew 25, there's a future judgment coming and and Christ is is going to ask whether you cared for the least of these. Gregory and Basil both did that. But Gregory also frequently drew attention to the fact that the God that Christians worship is the God who has made himself known in the the self-giving and um, humble and sacrificial, costly love of the person of Christ. So it's in in Christ's willingness to take on poverty, in Christ's willingness to bear illness and sickness, and and his willingness to become a curse for us. That's sort of what Gregory drew attention to. And he would tell people, he would then say, therefore, because this is our faith, this is the God whom we desire, the God whom we serve, the God who is making us like himself. Faith, therefore, exercises itself precisely by imitating that God in acts of self-giving and acts of sacrificial and costly love. So it sounds like what Christian faith and Christian hope actually produce are are a deeper engagement with reality because they, uh, if if Christ um, took all of these things voluntarily, took them into Himself, then we have nothing to fear, um, and not in the sense of I have nothing to fear because I'm on my couch watching Netflix and my job is secure or pretty secure. At least I'm married to someone whose job is secure, and I have extra bags of hot Cheetos and lots of toilet paper. But I don't have any reason to fear because He's risen, and actually my engagement can deepen. I can plunge into and bear the most difficult of circumstances because faith and hope are actually producing in me the character of God and uh, the acts of God and the desire to do the acts of God. So that sounds like a, a lot like charity or love, which is another section of your syllabus. Um, if you got faith and hope, you have to have love somewhere in the syllabus. Um, charity, the linchpin. And I'm I'm curious, as you were diving into history and looking at some of the mistakes that Christians have made in responding to crises in the past. And as we look at our circumstances today, I wonder, can the appropriateness of certain acts of charity change? I think uh, in another context, for example, of the way some approaches to mission have changed dramatically in the last 50 years. You mentioned micro-lending. Um, then there's, there's the book, When Helping Hurts. Are there any ways Christians approached plague and disaster in the past that were acts of love, acts of charity, that those approaches today, they might not work, or perhaps they might not work in the particular context that you're ministering to. Yeah, you know, I think I really think that this is one of the the most important questions that we have to ask ourselves as we think through what should be our response now. Because when you read Christian history and a lot of people I'm not the I'm certainly not the only one talking about this. Plenty of people are drawing attention to, you know, how second and third and fourth century Christians responded in times of epidemic. 
and um, and how we should look to their example to guide us in the present. The difficulty is when you look to these past examples, so often what is praised and rightly praised is the fact that Christians put themselves in harm's way and actually expose themselves to contamination precisely so that they could care for those in need. And the reason that they had to do so was because others in the city or town or, or rural area in which they lived were fleeing. You know, Thucydides talks about this in his, his history of the Peloponnesian War, when this terrible plague struck struck Athens in the year 430. And Thucydides talks about how people were terrified and people abandoned those whom they loved. Brother abandoned sister and father abandoned child, um, husband abandoned wife. And, uh, and people started living as if there was no tomorrow and simply caring for themselves. So then when you look at the Christian response, it's in contrast to that. It's this amazing example of love. The problem comes, though, not in admiring or praising or, or rightly lifting this example up, but in the way that we apply it to our present circumstances. We aren't living in the same circumstances that the second and third century Christians did. We now have a developed, thanks be to God, we have this modern developed hospital system. We also um, have a lot of ways in which things like poverty alleviation and caring for those in financial duress are actually being conducted through governmental organizations in ways that they never would have been done in the ancient world. It was entirely dependent on the charity of Christians or the charity of the church to care for the poor. But now, because of the Christian influence in the West, this is actually something that governments do. So that means we have to apply that when we think about what does it mean to love my neighbor today? This is why I draw on the example of Martin Luther, and I think he's so helpful. You know, Luther, he, he did, Amber, exactly what you did in kind of connecting faith and charity in your last comment, where he said, faith is both a recognition that we've been freed from all these things that we are afraid of, but faith, because it's faith in Jesus Christ, is also always active in imitating him by freeing us precisely to love our neighbor as Christ loved us. So when Luther is faced with a plague or a pandemic, another pastor from a neighboring town writes him and asks him, is it, is it okay for a pastor to flee a pandemic? And Luther's response is, well, it's, it's not as straightforward as you might think. Luther himself chose to remain in Wittenberg, and he opened up his household, and he and his wife cared for a lot of the sick and brought them in their home. And he felt that was his moral duty. But in his in his letter, he actually says, for those who are clergy and those who are trained in, in the medical profession, when there are people in need, they have a moral obligation to love their neighbor by caring for them in their sickness, even to the detriment of their own health, when there aren't others around to do so. On the other hand, Luther says, if they're already being cared for, then it's a different question to say, should I go and be with them in person? Precisely because Luther recognizes you can actually become sick yourself. You can contract this plague and you might pass it on to other people. So Luther takes into consideration the moral duty you have not only to care for those who are sick, 
but the equally serious moral duty you have not to heedlessly expose yourself and actually pass on sickness to others. At one point, Luther actually says, he says, those that go around and needlessly expose themselves to the plague and then bring themselves in now being contaminated into the presence of other people are actually guilty of murder if other people die because of their exposing themselves to this. So even though sometimes Christians feel like, you know, they're doing something that's just terribly unchristian by isolating themselves instead of going out and caring for sick, because after all, didn't St. Elizabeth of Hungary, you know, go and visit those who are sick? And, you know, didn't these second and third century Christians care for those who were ill in person? We want to say, well, yes, they did, but because of their influence, we actually developed this thing called a, a, you know, a medical system and a hospital industry, which now means that maybe the best way to love your neighbor in your present is to also take care that you don't needlessly expose yourself and pass on this sickness to those who are vulnerable. This makes me think of the saying of Jesus to his disciples to be wise as serpents and be harmless as doves. And that is, can be such a mysterious saying much of the time until it hits the ground and makes so much sense in a really particular situation like this one. So it sounds like what you are trying to teach, what you're hoping to spark in those you teach is an idea of what my job is, not a, a fantasy Christian heroic effort, which Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about a lot in his writings is about the the fantasy world that we want to engage with as opposed to the reality that we're called to engage with. And reality is the only place from which God ever calls us. And a fan, our fantasy worlds are worlds populated with idols, uh, populated even with Christian idols. But it really takes uh, wisdom and it and prudence. Prudence is for real. Prudence is not at its best an excuse to stay away. Prudence is uh, like all the virtues, a way to engage wisely in the world in a Christian way. Teaching practical charity seems kind of challenging, Jonathan. And what I'm thinking of is that after the coronavirus, um, the you know the sort of lockdowns have blown over around the country. Just in our country, there will be a lot to be done. It would be as if we had this tidal wave of sickness, but then when the tide draws back. There's the flotsam and jetsam of things that are very broken, that are left behind. Um, a lot to be suffered by many, economy, jobs, politics, medicine, family, community structures in communities that are particularly hard hit by the virus. Now, not just in this moment, what am I to do? But as the months pass, as the years pass, what in your class is the goal what is the practical goal for increasing faith, hope, and charity in your congregation? In other words, what would an increase of the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity look like in North Dallas? That's a really good question. And I think I would say, I think I would say several things. First, one of the most immediate practical effects of an increase in something like faith and hope would be that people in my church would be marked by patience and by courage. And that might, you know, that might seem kind of small, 
but I, I think that right now we are living through a time of enormous anxiety and fear. And there's a lot of reason for that. It's like Marilyn Robinson says, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. So I think that to even be a people who can show patience and to endure, as Hebrews puts it, in a time of severity and adversity, and to show courage in the face of a time that where there's so many reasons to be fearful and anxious is in and of itself one of my, my practical hopes. On the subject of charity, however, I think it's going to take a lot of different forms. And I think one of the biggest effects I would hope for is that people would begin to to consider not only the relationships in which they're invested and the opportunities that they have in the way that they use their time um, and the way that they use their resources, that they would start to see these things, you know, because Plano is a very, I mean, it's a very typical affluent suburban culture that there's a lot of consumerism and a lot of individualism. And so to press people to say, how can we consider the resources that we have, whether it's in terms of uh, the, the resources of work opportunity that we have, if we are people who can use our work um, or, or use um, employment to benefit others, whether it's the resources of the, the wealth and the money uh, and the material resources that we've been given, the time and, and skills that we have, the relationships in which we're already invested, to recognize all of these things as spheres of stewardship that need to be used for the purpose of service and of love. And, you know, so that might sound like I'm not getting specific enough, and I'm not saying here's practically what people need to do. But again, I, I try to be careful about that because I'm not sure that I'm always the best person to to say to, you know, a group of 150 different people how specifically they need to exercise their own agency and follow these commands to use your material resources and to use your skills and your time and your personal connections in ways that imitate the pattern of Jesus in service and in love. I think one of the effects of this time, you know, what, what Ephraim Radner has been calling the time of the virus, is that it's just alerting people to the fact that, that we really do have uh, just a set amount of time, that a lot of things that we took for granted and, you, you know, you're just sort of going through life, all of a sudden this has been disrupted. And it turns out we can spend our, our time differently than we did before. It turns out that we can spend our money differently than we were doing before. And now that that has been exposed, now that we've been alerted to that, that there is a possibility of living a different way, my hope is that going forward, that we would ask ourselves, what do we do with the time that is given us? If it's a relatively short amount of time, and if we are called to follow this one who emptied himself on our behalf, what do we do with this time that is given us and these resources that are given us? And that sounds like the question that Christians have been asking themselves for many, many centuries now in many circumstances. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Amber. I appreciate that. This has been a delight. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. 
If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.